This morning, we're going to be looking at, of course, the Word of God. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter, chapter 4. The, t- the uh, series is called, entitled, Behold the Man. This morning, the message is, Behold the Sinless Savior. Behold the Sinless Savior. That's our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we read this passage, look at this passage, uh, I'm reminded of some things. One is that both in the Gospel of Luke and also in the Gospel of Matthew, this story is told. Mark doesn't tell the whole story, but he mentions it. And so in three out of four Gospels, this story is mentioned. In half of the Gospels, the, whole, the story is told. I won't say the whole story because really it's a summary. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. But this story is told of Jesus' temptation. So the question is, what does God want us to learn from the story of Jesus' temptation? I mean, obviously, if he has it in the Word of God, it's there for a reason. But he's, he's obviously emphasizing it because it's in, it's in the Word of God twice, referred to at least three times. And so God wants us to learn something. God wants us to pay attention to the story of, of Jesus' temptation. So I think the writer of Hebrews shed some light on this. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. We're going to have it up on the screen. But Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, the writer says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want to share something with you from this passage before we get into our main text this morning. So you get two sermons in one, okay? I've got three three, uh, points on the first one, three points on the second one, just like a good Baptist preacher, okay? Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Where's that tie? First of all, I want you to notice in this passage, in Hebrews chapter 4, that through Christ's temptation, we see him as both sinless and sympathetic. Tells us that he has been tempted at all points, yet without sin. And so Jesus is sinless. He has to be sinless to be a sacrifice for our sins. He has to be the spotless lamb. And so Jesus resisted sin. He is without sin. But he's also sympathetic. Because he has been tempted, he knows what it is like when you and I are tempted. And so not only is he sinless, but he's sympathetic. He understands and he cares. Not only does he understand and care, but he can help us when we are tempted. The second thing about this passage in Hebrews 4, I noticed, was that through Christ's temptation, we are strengthened to be steadfast in faith. Because the writer says we need to hold fast our confession because of this high priest who was tempted and without sin and also sympathizes with the feeling of our infirmities. So because of who Jesus is, we can be steadfast in our faith. We can hold fast to our confession. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
we can have confidence in him. And then the third thing I noticed from this passage is that through Christ's temptation, we are secure in our communion with him. Because the last verse, verse 16 that we read, says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's because Jesus is our sinless Savior who is also sympathetic with our situation that we can be confident that you and I can approach his throne to obtain the grace and the mercy that we need. Aren't you glad that God will hear you when you call? God, folks, God, the one who created, the one who spoke everything into existence, listens to you and listens to me when we call out to him in prayer. And it's because of our Savior, who is sinless and sympathetic, that we can approach that throne. So with that in mind, let us go back to, or go to, Ephesians chapter, or excuse me, I'll get ahead of myself, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And we're going to talk about, first of all, the enemy's methods of temptation. The enemy's methods of temptation. When the enemy tempted Jesus, Satan tempted Jesus, he followed certain methods. And he, he uses those methods in our lives as well. First of all, he is persistent. Look at verse, let's just read 1 and 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Being tempted by the devil. The word being, the verb being, is translated from a Greek word, is in the present tense in the Greek, which means it's a continuous or repeated action. It's easy to read this passage and think, Jesus had this temptation, he shot it down, he had that temptation, he shot it down, he had that temptation, he shot it down. But what Luke is giving us is a summary of 40 days of temptation. Being continually repeated action. Being tempted by the devil. Satan is persistent. He doesn't give up easily. Just because you resisted temptation today doesn't mean it won't come back tomorrow. Or maybe even later today. He's persistent. He's also ruthless. He attacks us in our weakness. Look in verse 2 again. It says, and... He ate nothing, in the middle of verse 2, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Satan doesn't play fair. He will tempt you when you're weak. Physically weak, maybe you're tired, maybe you're hungry, maybe you're lonely, maybe you're stressed out. And when you're in your state of weakness, that's when Satan pounces. He knows when to tempt. He knows when to attack. And he attacked Jesus at a moment of physical weakness. Yes, Jesus is God. Jesus is also man. And the Bible says that he was hungry. And that's when Satan attacked. Satan is persistent. He is ruthless. And he's also consistent. You can predict how he tempts. <laughs> He tempted Jesus, much like he tempted Eve in the garden. Satan has his old toolbox, and he, he reaches in there, and he pulls out the same old stuff. In verse 3, 
He was appealing to the desire of the flesh. Jesus was hungry. And he said, so you should turn this stone into bread. If you're the son of God, turn this stone into bread. And so he was appealing to the desire of the flesh. In verse 5 and verse 6, he took Jesus up on a mountain. He showed him all these kingdoms and all the power and all the glory of those kingdoms. So that Jesus could see those things and he was tempting him with the desire of the lust of the eyes. Satan uses that a lot today, especially with men. Again, amen. <laughs> men. Lust of the eyes, where we put our eyes. You know, David. David fell because of his eyes. He was home when he should have been out with his troops. The king. One day was looking over and saw on another roof a beautiful woman bathing, Bathsheba. He lusted with his eyes. He acted on that lust. Committed a horrible sin and then compounded it with murder. Lust of the eyes is a terrible thing. And so Satan used that tool against Jesus. He showed him all this power and all these possessions. And then the pride of life. Verse 9. He takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down because God's going to protect you. He even quoted scripture to prove it. Prove who you are. Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, came and was laid in a, a stable in a little manger. And all of his life lived a, a, a poor life, the son of a carpenter, as was supposed, really the son of God, but he lived as the son of a carpenter. But he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so Satan's saying, look, let everybody know who you are. Prove who you are, the pride of life. He still uses those tools today. He's persistent, he's ruthless, he's consistent. And then he perverts the truth. He perverts the truth. In verse 3 he says, if you are the son of God. In verse 9 he says, if you are the son of God. Look back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 22. This is a message from last week. Chapter 1, verse 22. After John had baptized Jesus, look at what happened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, just a few days or weeks before this. Had been identified by the Father verbally from heaven as the Son of God. John heard it. The others saw it. And the Spirit came and descended on him like a dove. John said that the Father had told him that the one who the Spirit descended on like a dove, he was the Messiah. And John bore testimony that Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus heard it from the Father. He experienced the dove, the Spirit coming, him, coming on him like a dove just a few days before. And now what's Satan doing? He's perverting the truth of what Jesus knows from his experience with the Father. Satan ever cast doubt in your mind? If you were really a Christian, 
you wouldn't do that. If you were really saved, if you were this, if you were that, that's what he's doing with Jesus. Satan loves to pervert the truth. He not only perverts the truth of Jesus' experience, he perverts the truth of the word of God. Look in verse 9. Verse 9, when he brings him up to the pinnacle of the temple, and down really to verse 10, Satan is quoting scripture. How many of you know that Satan knows the Bible? He does. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What is he doing? He's quoting Psalm 91. Is Psalm 91 the word of God? Yes, it is. Is it true? Yes, it is. So how is Satan twisting the truth? He is taking a passage of the word of God out of context and twisting it to mean something to cause Jesus, or try to cause Jesus to sin. You know, preachers talk about context all the time. A text without context is a pretext. You've probably heard that. That's one of my favorites. But it's not just the immediate context. That's very important. The immediate context is important. to understand what's going on in the past of Scripture, in the book of the Bible that you're reading, Old Testament, New Testament. All of that is very important. Who the writer is, what the setting is, all that's very important. The context is important. But the bigger picture of the context is how does it fit within the entire Bible? I've shared this many times in my ABF, and you've probably heard it before, but someone decided that they would find out the will of God by just opening their Bible and let it fall to a page and just stick their finger there and read it, you know. And it said, Judas went and hanged himself. I thought, we would try again, you know, and do another one. Go and do that likewise. That's not exegesis, folks. That's not, that's not good Bible interpretation. You, you don't take the Word of God out of context. You don't twist the Word of God to try to make it, make it mean what you want it to mean. That's what Satan does. Remember, that's what he did with Eve in the garden. Did God really say, you will not surely die? Well, you know what? She didn't die that day, did she? Physically. See, he perverted the word of God. He even said, you will be like God. And later, God said, man is like us. Man has become like us. See, what Satan does is he takes some truth and he mixes error with it. And if you take truth and you mix error, it's one whole lie. That's what it is. So he perverts the truth. Now that's Satan's methods of temptation. Let's look at the Lord's power over temptation. How did Jesus deal with this temptation? Well, let's start with verse 1. Verse 1 says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. First of all, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. That may seem a little 
strange because Jesus is God. But remember, Jesus is fully God and he's also fully man. And Jesus, the Bible says, is full of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah had told us in his prophecy that it would be that way. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, filled Jesus. You know, if, if Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit to resist temptation, don't you think we need, we need to do the same? He was full of the Holy Spirit. Notice that being full of the Holy Spirit did not keep him from being tempted. As a matter of fact, it was the Holy Spirit that led him into the wilderness to be tempted. So you can be full of the Holy Spirit and still be tempted. But folks, we need to be full of the Holy Spirit to resist temptation. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. The second thing I wanted to show you with that is that Jesus spent a significant time alone with God. In prayer. Now, if you read this passage, prayer is not mentioned. Now, I'm not doing like Satan. I'm not trying to pervert the scripture. Just stay with me for just a minute. It's, it's not in this particular passage, but I want you to notice what Jesus was doing. It says, For 40 days, being tempted of the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. I don't think he was trying to lose weight. He was fasting, and typically fasting and prayer go together. But if that's not enough for you, all you have to do is read the Gospels. Jesus was always a man of prayer. Time and time again, he would get away from his disciples. He would get away from the crowd. He would go to a place alone to pray. Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, Mark chapter 6, verse 46, Luke 9, 28, John 6, 15. And we can't forget the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was praying before the night, the night before he was, he was to be crucified. And he prayed, he was tempted. Folks, he was tempted greatly, more greatly in that moment probably than ever. The Bible says that he, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. He called out to the Father and said, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Folks, Jesus was a man of prayer. Jesus prayed. He didn't just pray at the dinner table. He didn't just pray at worship on the Sabbath. He didn't just pray an occasional Prayer. Jesus spent significant time alone with God in prayer. And he relied on prayer to help him to fight spiritual battles. That's what he was doing in the garden. Third thing I'd like to share with you about how Jesus, how the Lord had power over temptation, is that Jesus answered every temptation 
with the word of God. Every temptation with the word of God. Let's look at them again. The first one, verse 3 and verse 4. The devil said, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy 8.13. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God is speaking to the children of Israel about why he fed them with manna in the wilderness. And he said, I fed you with manna in the wilderness so that you might know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, he fed them with bread, manna. He did feed them. But how did he feed them? He told them, you have to go out and gather it in the morning. You can't gather for two days. Work extra hard today and just take it easy tomorrow because it'll go bad. Except for the Sabbath. You can gather extra for the Sabbath so you don't have to go out and gather on that day. But God made provision. And what was God doing? God was teaching them to hear his word and obey it, thereby trusting him for their daily sustenance. Could Jesus have turned the stone into bread? Well, sure, he could have done that. He didn't even need the stone. He could have just made the bread. He's the word of God. He can just speak and it comes into existence, right? But he wasn't going to do that because he was trusting in God, the Father, to provide all of his needs. And he didn't live by that bread. He lives by the word of God. And then secondly. When Satan tempted him again. In verse. Five. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time and said to him. To you I will give this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Now what was that, that temptation Really, when you, when you boil it down, what that temptation was, was really for a, temp, a temptation for Jesus to worship himself. It was a temptation for Jesus to sin against God, worship the devil, in order to get glory for himself. Here are all these kingdoms and all this glory and all this authority. Jesus, I will give it to you. If you'll just sin against God by worshiping me. And who Jesus really would have been worshiping was himself. You see, that's, that's a big temptation for us today. Is there anything that you would sin against God to get? Or to keep? Anything. Because if, if there is anything that you would sin against God in order to get it. Or sin against God in order to keep it. That thing is an idol. You are worshiping it more than God. If you are willing to disobey your Lord, 
your master, your king, Jesus, in order to obtain something, you, you have put that thing up as an idol. And really the idol is you because your satisfaction is more important to you than God's glory. That's what idol worship's all about. It's not about the thing, whether it's made out of wood, made out of stone, whatever it might be. It's about the motivation behind it. It can even be a good thing. As a matter of fact, this thing that Satan is offering, it's interesting that Satan would do that. Notice that it says in verse 7, or verse 6 rather, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. Jesus didn't correct him. Jesus didn't say, no, 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 that's not yours. No, it had been delivered to Satan. Satan is the god of this world. And he has a certain amount of authority in this world system. But who gave it to him? <laughs> the Father. God. Because even though Satan has this authority, he is still under the ultimate authority of God. And so all these things that he was offering to Jesus are already his. <laughs> Revelation chapter 11 verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. You think Jesus knew that? Absolutely. So what was the temptation? The temptation was, God has something for you, but I'm going to show you a shortcut to get it. You don't have to go through the cross. I'm going to show you a shortcut, and you can sin against God, and I will give it to you now. You don't have to wait. But how did Jesus answer that? Jesus answered that with the word of God. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the last temptation was the temptation of pride, the temptation to exalt himself. Satan took Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple. He perverted scripture, gave Jesus the opportunity to prove who he was. To all the world, there would be no doubt. And Jesus answers, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, Jesus knew the word of God. He knew it in its immediate context. He knew it in its larger context. He knew the spirit of the word of God. He knew that you could not take one scripture and pit it against another scripture and try to use scripture to get what you want. He understood God's word. And so he answered every temptation with the word of God. Deuteronomy 6.16 was that one. So this brings us to the last point, which is, affects us. It's the saints' weapons against temptation. The saints' weapons against temptation. We have the same weapons Jesus had. First of all, we need to be filled with the Spirit. You say, well, I've got the Holy Spirit. I've been 
saved. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit, but you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? We could do a whole series on being filled with the Holy Spirit. But, but there's a passage that I love to go to that really summarizes it, I think, in a great way. And it's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 to 21. We'll have it on the screen there. It says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to your heart with the Lord, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, what am I getting at? This, this is not a comprehensive lesson on how to be filled with the Spirit, but this helps us to understand what does being filled with the Spirit look like? What does it look like? Well, first of all, it looks like a heart of worship. He said we are to uh, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. We're to have a song in our heart. You know, a couple weeks ago, Doug made mention of people hearing a song during the service and they're humming it all week long or singing it all week long and, and last week somebody came to him and told him yeah I did that you know and, and so he said this is the one I want you to remember this week you know it, that's a great thing isn't it great this music this morning just fantastic so much of it directly out of the word of God my wife calls that when you get a song in your head and you can't get rid of it she calls it an earworm you ever heard that term earworm just keep rolling around in there you know let me tell you, that's a good thing to have rolling around in there. Gives you a heart of worship for your Lord. Not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. What else does being filled with the Spirit look like? It looks like thankfulness and praise. He says, giving thanks always and for everything. Wow, that's big. That's a, that's a big one. Always and for everything. You mean all the good stuff, right? No. Everything. Everything means everything in the Greek. Just like it does in the English. Give thanks for everything. You think God wants us to be thankful? Amen. He wants us to be thankful. But you know, thankfulness in every situation and for everything, you know what that does? It gives you a God perspective. Because so many times when we're going through difficulty and, and we're under stress and things just aren't going well, we tend to be, to be governed by our emotions. And we think, if God would just relieve me of this problem, whatever it might be, you can fill in the blank. Folks, God is not there to relieve us of all of our problems. I'm sorry, it's just true. <laughs> he actually uses those problems to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, right? Romans 8, 28, you know what that purpose is? It's in verse 29. To be conformed to the image of his son. 
You don't get to look like Jesus on easy street. And so if I can thank God for the good things and the bad things and all the things, I can have a perspective that God is using these things to make me more like Jesus. Being filled with the Spirit gives you a God perspective because it helps you to be thankful. Being filled with the Spirit, he says, submitting to one another. What does that mean? It means putting others first. It means not always advancing your own cause and your own agenda. But thinking about others more important than yourselves. Someone who is spirit-filled is a person who has a heart of worship. A person who gives thanks. A person who submits to one another. And a person who has reverence for Christ. He says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We, we, we worship Him. We adore Him. We magnify Him. He is our Savior and our King and our Lord. It, it, it kind of makes me chuckle when people get in the discussion about you know, Jesus being Savior over here and Jesus being Lord over here. You know what? There's only one Jesus, and He is Savior and Lord. Amen. And if you, if you trust Him as your Savior... You must recognize the one you're trusting is also your master, your Lord, your king. He owns you. He bought you with a price. The price of his own blood. And so we have reverence for him. So first weapon for the saint is to be filled with the spirit. Second weapon with the saint, we need to be like Jesus. We need to spend time alone with God in prayer. Significant time alone with God in prayer. Folks, if Jesus needed to pray, don't we? If Jesus needed to pull himself apart from the throes of ministry when people were clamoring around wanting to be healed and he would go up into a mountain to pray, don't we need to go somewhere and pray? Why do we need to pray? We need to pray because for one thing, God tells us to. But we need to cultivate our relationship with the Father. We need to know Him better. You know, that's the way relationships work. I've been married for 38 years. And I know more about my wife now than I did when I married her. I know a lot more. She knows a lot more about me. She was just a pretty girl back then. Now I know the good things and the bad things. She knows the good things and the bad things about me. But you know what? We know each other because we've cultivated time together. We spend time together investing in one another. Do you do that in your marriage? You better do that in your marriage. If not, we have a biblical counseling ministry right here in the church. And I know usually it's the men. You know, we're straying off somewhere. Mine's on everything else but our wife. And she's over here going, remember me? It's kind of that way with the Lord too, isn't it? Folks, we need to spend time cultivating our relationship with the Father in prayer. And when we pray, we need to confess our sins. Read a little book on prayer recently. Pastor Sam gave me. 
and very convicting about confessing your sins in prayer. You know what it means to confess your sins? It means to say the same thing that God said. You know what, what, what our culture does is we rename sin. Don't we? We do it all the time. It's, it's, it's not adultery. It's an affair. Well, an affair could be a party, you know? <laughs> we rename sin. Folks, when you sin against a holy God, God says confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You need to name it to God. Tell God what you did. Well, I don't need to do that. He already knows. No, he wants you to recognize it. Be honest with God. Be open with God in prayer. Why? God wants you to hate your sin just as much as he does. Don't sugarcoat it. And then learn to align in prayer. Learn to align your prayer, your will, with God's will. To me, that, that, that was the most eye-opening thing when the Lord helped me to understand that about prayer. The single most eye-opening thing I think I've ever learned about prayer is, you know, you, you can take promises, for example. It's just like what Satan does. Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, Lord, I want a million bucks. In Jesus' name, amen. Where is it? And we need to understand what it means to ask in Jesus' name. It's not a tagline. I don't tweet, but, you know, people put something and they put a hashtag. You know, you don't put in Jesus' name hashtag and then God is obligated to do that thing. It doesn't work that way. No, in Jesus' name means I am representing the kingdom of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I am coming to God to plead for God's plan, God's will, God's purposes to be accomplished. That's in Jesus' name. I'm not saying you don't say in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer. What I'm saying is understand what you're saying. When you come in the name of the Lord, you are coming as a representative of of the king of heaven. It's not about you. It's about him. And if you ask anything. In his name. He said I will do it. He meant it. But that doesn't mean. That's carte blanche to ask for whatever our flesh desires. We have to learn. That prayer. Is not about twisting God's arm. To do my will. Prayer is about me conforming my prayer. To God's will. Amen. How do you do that? Two things. This is, this is big stuff. Now listen. This, pay attention. Read the Bible and pray. That's it. That's how you do it. That's how you learn how to pray in the will of God. Read the Bible and pray. Well, I probably should throw in obey God. <laughs> but as you read God's word and you understand what God says and you understand the local context and the larger context of God's word and you begin to pray within the will of God seeking God you will begin to see God answer those prayers because you're not about getting your own way you're about glorifying him and if you want to be able to resist temptation you need to be a man or woman of prayer you can't do it on your own 
Lastly, you need to answer the lies of the tempter with the truth of the word of God. And they are lies. Sure, they're half-truths. Take a little bit of truth, mix in some error, but it's a lie. It's a lie. He will tell you, you can have this. You can have this if you'll just do that. You can take a shortcut to God's blessing. He'll pervert God's word. You come back with the truth of God's word. How do you do that? Well, first of all, you got to know it. You got to know it. How do you know it? You read it. You read it. That's why I talked about earlier, you need to be in God's word every day. Now, I'm not going to stand up here in front of you and tell you I have always done that. I've struggled with that. I'm just being honest with you. I've struggled with it. Maybe one or two of you out there have done that too. Let me tell you, I made a, I made a commitment this year. And I, and I gave myself some accountability partners. My two sons and my two son-in-laws. And now I've added two more young men to that group. And we're, we've got a group text going on. We're keeping each other accountable for reading the word of God every day. Because I need that accountability. Whatever works. <laughs> Get in the word of God every day. You need to hear from God. And God needs to hear from you. Folks, if you're going to be able to withstand Satan, you cannot do it on your own. You have to have the filling of the Spirit. You have to be a man or woman of prayer. And you have to know the Word of God to be able to refute his lies. And there is no shortcut. You just have to do it. You are a child of the King and you are responsible to know what he says to you. It's your responsibility. Not Pastor Sam's. Not your ABF teacher. We have our own responsibilities. And our responsibility is to give out the word of God. But it's your responsibility to make sure you listen. And make sure you read it yourself. Make sure you know it. And then you have to apply it. Satan knows the word of God. But he doesn't obey it. Folks, we've got to be people of obedience. We've got to obey God's word. We've got to apply his principles. We've got to believe it. Trust him. Rely on him. And we've got to live lives that are for his pleasure, not for ours. It's not about us. It's about him. It's all about Christ. 